Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for July 26th, 2018, the Pay with Cash edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am secretly recording John Dickerson of CBS This Morning in New York. Hello, John. I'm Hel- secretly recording you. Oh, you are? Oh. Yes. Well. It's a secret. Then do it in cash. But no, wait, a check. Or no, a cash. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'll take care of it. Pay with cash. Emily sure. Bazelon of the New York Times is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Uh, hello. Not secretly recording you, because I think Connecticut's a two-party consent state. I think you're right, although I'm not totally sure. You know, I just never turn on the tape recorder without asking permission, I don't think. It just seems like the wrong thing to do. Yes, it does. On this week's GabFest, Michael Cohen's secret tape and what, if anything, it means. And then a Trump-endorsed conservative wins the GOP primary in Georgia and sets up the most exciting governor's race of 2018. Then a truly dismal stand-your-ground case in Florida. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Michael Cohen, president's lawyer, this week released a surreptitious and cryptic recording of a conversation between him and then-candidate Donald Trump from, I think, September of 2016. In the audio recording, which was probably legal under New York law, Trump appears to be going along with a plan to pay $150,000 to the National Enquirer to buy from the National Enquirer rights that the National Enquirer had recently bought to a story, to the life story of Karen McDougal, a woman who claimed to have had an affair with Trump shortly after Melania Trump gave birth to their son in 2006. Whew, that is, it's very soap opera. It does not appear that Trump ever paid this $150,000. It is also not clear to me, at least, what Cohen is trying to accomplish by leaking the tape. John, based on what you've heard and you've read, is it clear what is happening on the tape or is it not clear? I don't think it's terribly uh, clear what's happening on the tape other than that Donald Trump, whose spokespeople previously said he knew nothing about it and that that, that he knew nothing about this arrangement is heard on tape intimately discussing and coordinating the details of the thing about which he said or his spokespeople said he knew nothing. So that is, that's clear enough. Um, one, th- one of the reasons it's difficult to figure out what's going on is they've clearly had a previous conversation. He understands the code words that Cohen is using, the, the president does, um, because the conversation without any previous knowledge um, would make no really no sense at all because Cohen is saying, I'm going to set up a company First of all, just stepping back one more sentence, it's a very relaxed conversation about things like setting up companies, making $150,000 payments. Uh, If this were A, new information, or um, a complete out-of-left-field attempt at extortion, you would imagine uh, many other people would think, what's going on? What do you mean set up a company? Like, you'd be a a gatling gun of questions. None of that is there, really. 
But what we don't uh, we don't really know all of the things that the president knows in his head, whether he there's no question. There's no um, I didn't hear any evidence one way or the other about whether he agrees uh, with the underlying charge, which is to say, is he arranging the payment because he knows this is true and he wants to make it go away? Or is he arranging the payment because it's extortion, it's totally untrue, but he doesn't want to fight it because it's September of 2016 and if the story comes out, it'll be damaging. So this is just, he's it's a big sunk cost for him. I couldn't tell any of all of that. And then there's other weird, he seems to be on the phone with somebody else at the beginning, which is somewhat interesting. The Washington Post uh, has some speculation about that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's worth being highly speculative and we don't really know but it, um he has another side conversation in the middle of it so that all contributes to the fuzziness so emily what about the pay with cash line what did you guys did you guys think that was clear or not clear well i was gonna ask you that that was basically my question that i was about to ask you which well, is i'm asking what? you because we both have ears <laughs> well <laughs> well okay so there's the there's the question of is trump saying to pay with cash that's number one question. Number two question is, if he is, in fact, saying to pay with cash, what are the legal implications, possible legal implications of that? So, look, I'm not an audiologist, and and nor did I expose myself to Is that to a thing? What's an audiologist? Someone who studies hearing. Oh, okay. Uh, Wait, studies hearing? Okay. Like, you take your kid to an audiologist if you're worried that it Well, I know, but why would you need term. to be an audiologist to just, like, listen to this? I mean, I oh think it's hard God. to figure out what's going on. It was just on. a term. I was just using a term to imply somebody who's not scientific <laughs> about hearing The wrong things. term, like, and it suggested on, that we all are... had to have a medical degree in order to just, like, listen to this thing. What, what I'm saying is I have not done forensic analysis on this. It's very <laughs> okay. cursory. Okay. And so, to me, it doesn't sound like he is saying, don't pay with cash. But no. that's... But I'm... That, but that beyond that, I don't really have an opinion. Also, isn't the big issue whether this is a violation violation of campaign finance laws and whether he pays with cash or pays with barter system or drachmas or whatever? That's the issue at hand, not this side issue of cash versus credit, right? Well, except that Giuliani said that Trump was saying, don't pay with cash. And it is yeah. not at all clear that that's what he said. So in the sense but that it's that like the, yet one more time where— Right, but that's less important than whether this is illegal and he can be prosecuted for it, right? True, but the obfuscating and lying is— If you're—I mean, yeah. just on the lie scale, it, it, there's the big lie, which is that he didn't know anything about it. But I'm interested in your take, Emily, on the, the campaign finance challenges. I mean, I don't think that it is in itself evidence of a campaign finance violation because, as you said, we don't know whether this payment got made. Should they be, like, closely looking into this? Yes, absolutely they should be. You know, one question is whether David Pecker and the National Enquirer and American Media, what's it called? AMI, what's the I stand for? American Inc, Media probably. Incorporated. And America Media Incorporated were acting in their press function or doing some other thing, which could be an illegal campaign donation. And I certainly think that this whole, you know, catch and kill arrangement, if it was for the purposes of helping Trump win the election, looks like it could be a campaign finance violation. Whether Trump himself contributed to that and made it happen, that's trickier. You have to know, like, you have to follow the money. And then I think the hardest part for prosecutors is going to be intent. How are they going to show that the rationale for killing, catching and killing the story was the election versus sparing Trump embarrassment or, you know, helping him in his marriage? I know that we are not doing ourselves uh, any favors here because we're talking about this as the first topic of conversation. But I must say 
that this story is strangely uninteresting to me. This is, it doesn't tell us a single thing that we don't already know about him. We know he's an adulterer. We know that he pays people off. We know that he has shady finances. We know that there were that they were playing close to the line on campaign finance stuff to begin with. It's not to say that it's not scandalous and immoral and disgusting because it is, but it doesn't is not scandalous and immoral and disgusting in ways that we weren't already aware that he was scandalous and immoral and disgusting. And so it's sort of like it feels to me like a something which we're spending a lot of breath on, and is a is is not adding to the, the the common stock of knowledge in the world. Well, I think when you have audio tape, fair. when you have audio tape of a um, of something like this, that makes it slightly different because it's you ha- you hear him talking about a thing they said he knew nothing about. So that's on other things you have you don't. Have, I mean, sometimes you have his own audio tape that he contradicts later when he's audio tape like things he says at a press conference. But um, but I think that changes it a little bit. Is the is the kind of fact that this was recorded in secret and the biggest point of course is what it means for the for the legal case which is that his fixer the person who taped lots of phone conversations whose job it was to manage these kinds of things and who given the tone of this conversation obviously did this enough so that they had a kind of shorthand for how you make things like this go away if the guy you employed to make things go away is now has now turned against you, which is the context in which this came out, then that's a that's a big deal because he's got the keys to the to the kingdom. And those keys actually aren't even in his hands anymore. They're in the hands of prosecutors. Um so Although that, this I think is, is the notable. best if this is the best he's got, that's not very good. Well, well presumably we don't know the prosecutors that. have a hell of a lot more. What Michael Cohen decides to do next and whether what he's really doing is fishing around for a pardon um, is going to be super significant in terms of the legal um, investigation. I also felt like this having the tape was part of a week of um, Trump asking people not to believe what they were seeing or hearing and to believe him instead. And I know that this also is familiar, the lying and the obfuscating and the stating of falsehoods, but it was – just a head-spinning week for that of, you know, the FISA court application comes out explaining the um, Carter Page surveillance, and it completely contradicts the Devin Nunes Republican version of what this um, FISA application was based on and supports the Democrats' interpretation, and Trump says the opposite. And there were other examples of that this week, and I felt like we were back in the moment right after the inauguration of the pictures of the crowds and being told to believe something that was not what matched what was in front of our eyes. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess you can say that's nothing new either because we did know it. But at the time, that seemed trivial. And increasingly, it's just like part of the core um, approach of this presidency. It goes without saying, John, that this is unlikely to be something that will move poll numbers in a significant way unlike perhaps Helsinki did given that what should i mean what 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 should the media do with this and also what should the public do with this story there are so many other things that are happening the the tariff stories the sort of attacks on obamacare the endangered species act the threats against iran there's a lot of there's a lot of both substance and and smoke going on with this particular story what should we as citizens and we as media do with it? Well, I think you should cover all of those things. Um, 
you know, we... Even though you can't cover all of those things, even though... When well, you it, cover, depends the, it depends the venue, right? I mean, so we met, we, just in what we do every day, we mentioned all of those things, except for uh, the, maybe the, what, the Obamacare um, uh, thing. And, um, you know, you mention it, but then don't, um, don't dwell on it, except to the extent that it, it, I, I, I think there's a moment, A, I think that one should always take note when, uh, when the president is caught same thing, saying something that's that untrue, you know, where, where it's the situation is this stark. I think that should always be something that we flag and so we don't uh, think, well, this is just the everyday, this is the everyday thing. Um, so I think it's, I think it's useful to do that. I think it is, it's also interesting just as a part of this larger drama. But I think in this narrow v- venue, I think actually the emoluments um, ruling that came down on um, Wednesday, right. the um, the judge that uh, decided, I think, is this right, Emily, for the first time, uh, basically defined what the emoluments clause means. The president and Justice Department yes. was ar- were arguing that it means essentially a straight up bribe. And the federal judge decided, no, it can mean um, essentially what the what those who brought the case, the attorney generals of Maryland and D.C., what they think it could mean, which is um, basically foreign countries uh, doing business with the Trump Hotel for the purposes of trying to gain favor with him. The fact that that's going forward is a huge deal, A, in and of itself, but B, um, again, it, it, to, to the extent that Michael Cohen is a is a can opener into a hidden part of the Trump um, world, the emoluments clause case could be a can opener into the finances of the Trump organization, uh, much of which have been hidden uh, by the president. Great point. Yeah, I, that totally. the ruling was great. It, it does feel like that. It is real significance. I mean, Emily, what it, just lingering on that for a second? I don't know if you've looked at it legally, but what is likely to happen with that case going forward? Assuming the administration will appeal it, so it'll go to the the Ninth Circuit. I mean, to the, to the D.C. Circuit somehow, but what will happen? I think it's actually in the Fourth Circuit because the case is in Maryland. And yes, it's going to go right up to the Fourth Circuit and there'll be an appellate court ruling. And I assume this case is going to the Supreme Court. And the question will be whether it goes right away in this kind of, you know, preliminary pre-discovery phase or whether it goes back to the district court and the discovery happens and then it goes up, which is a huge distinction in terms of, you know, the kind of financial information disclosure John was just talking about. What's so interesting is that we have this part of the Constitution that's never been interpreted before by the federal courts. And so we're going to have a very historical inquiry about what the framers intended at the time. This is like truly an originalist question um, in terms of interpreting the Constitution. And the judge's argument that um, emoluments must have meant something separate from bribes because otherwise, like, what's the word doing there since the um, meaning of bribe was, you know, commonly understood at the time of the framing? That seems kind of commonsensical. Um, I haven't studied it, like, seriously. So maybe there's a counter argument I'm not thinking of, um, but it's pretty interesting. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. You can become a Slate Plus member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And this week, we're going to talk about a very Dickersonian Slate Plus topic. The question is, would we all be more productive if we worked four days a week instead of five? Although, weirdly for John, it would be like if we worked, you know, six days a week instead of seven. <laughs> yeah. I don't think John, John How about worked seven days a week instead of eight? Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
John likes to imagine the hypothetical. In any case, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up and uh, hear bonus segments and get all sorts of other Slate Plus goodies. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Brian Kemp, a Republican in Georgia, won the gubernatorial primary or the runoff this week. Kemp had started his campaign with a, quote, deportation bus tour. He taped an ad in which he pointed a gun at a teenage boy interested in dating his daughter. He proposed to round, quote, round up criminal illegals in his pickup truck, and he coasted to victory over Casey Cagle, lieutenant governor. Uh, Kemp was the secretary of state of Georgia, Cagle, lieutenant governor. Kemp won upon receiving President Trump's endorsement and also upon benefiting from Cagle's stumbles. Uh, Cagle appeared both bumbling and scheming in a series of secret tapes. This is secret tapes week here on the mm-hmm. And now Kemp will face Stacey Abrams in the general election. Stacey Abrams, who won the Democratic primary earlier, would be the first black woman governor in American history. It is shaping up to be a fantastic and fantastically interesting race. Emily, early polling has this race, even slight edge to Kemp, but it's so early. Who the hell knows? But how is it even possible to, to envision a Democratic governor in a state that has been quite bright red for the past 20 years? Well, so Stacey Abrams has this really interesting um, theory about a path to victory. And I feel like I've already disclosed slash bragged about the fact that I know Stacey from law school. Um, So, you know, her theory is that there is this emerging majority in Georgia of young people and women and people of color, and they are underrepresented in the electorate. If you look at the percentage of them in the state versus the number registered to vote, it's too low. And that if they were registered to vote and they voted, they would have the power to carry this race. And so Stacey's been working for years on a project to register people to vote in Georgia. And one of the kind of crazy underlying themes of this 
you know, as you said, like totally fascinating race is that Kemp, as the secretary of state for Georgia, was the person who was purging the rolls and blocking a lot of these registrations from going through and really making it just much harder for people to vote in Georgia. So the underlying dynamic and these questions about voting rights and how you register people and who they are and what kind of rules the state has to follow to purge people from the rolls, those rules and that fight could determine the outcome of this race. Um, So I really hope they talk a lot about that because that in itself is, um, you know, an issue I think that Democrats in particular could raise up um, in 2018 and 2020, this question of access to the ballot. I, Emily, I I only read this one place and I don't know whether it's correct, but it it did. The the number I saw suggested that Abrams, who had set out to register hundreds of thousands of people, had only managed to register 46,000 people still. Yeah. And that's partly because Kemp. Right. But that's in large part because Kemp was not accepting a lot of these registration applications. There's been a lot of litigation over this going into the Georgia courts. Like it's a tangled web, this story. Um, And so that's all part of it. Right. But but just going to the electoral possibilities. So I think African-Americans are about 37 percent of the Georgia electorate. And Abrams presumably will win overwhelmingly, um, you know, 90 plus percent, which means she needs about 30 percent of the white vote. It would my, was my back of the envelope calculation, maybe even a little bit less. And yet it's very likely she won't even get it, which is just incredible to think that the Democratic Party among white Georgians is so weak that that it would be as low as that. Right. Well, I think this is where it's going to be really interesting that the Republicans have a candidate who is um, such a model of the Trump era and whether what effect that has on the white vote. There's also this question of who votes, who turns out, how many more people get registered and whether that has some um, impact on reshaping the Democratic electorate. Um, John, are you what's your sort of like immediate? Do you feel like it's too early to know how this race shapes up? Well, I uh I do. I like the f- I, I'm it, it's one of the fascinating races out there in another thing that makes this race fascinating to me is that both candidates are really interesting to watch kind of outside of and separate from from Georgia. Um and so it's the kind of thing where something that Kemp does, it's already happened, but um Will will potentially reverberate outside uh, outside the state, and obviously that's why we're talking about Abrams's um, approach to it too. I guess what I'm interested, what's connected to that, is the extent to which values and identity are wrapped up in all of these symbols now in ways that are a part of Trump, but also separate from Trump, and how that plays out in a gubernatorial race. So. National Senate and House races, you you can kind of see, you see a cl- little bit of a closer connection to Donald Trump. If the Democrats take over the House, they can investigate the president. They can investigate his administration. They can clog up the actions of his administration to advance a kind of national Democratic message. The Senate obviously uh, has extraordinary power with respect to judges and so forth. So you get the you get the understanding of the connection between Trump. And the candidates, but in a gubernatorial race, and and the issues are different. There's no there's no real relationship in the ways I just described. On the other hand, um, when a candidate plays to these identity uh, issues the way Kemp certainly has with guns and immigration, um, it is it, it does it have a power that 
essentially does connect him to what Donald Trump has created and an energy he has created in the country. And so is he able to access the same Trump base, the same Trump feeling? And that's one of the things that'll be interesting to watch in this, which is going to be different than we've than we've had in previous um in previous elections where gubernatorial races can kind of not be connected to the national message. There's this phenomenon that I first became aware of maybe two years ago called rolling coal. I don't know if you guys remember this, which is that people who who basically conservatives who hated oh, yeah. uh, the environmental movement in this country cr- created trucks which spewed as much pollution as possible, but it was to create huge amounts of black smoke uh, coming out of your truck. And it was, and people were, were thrilled about it and they were, took great joy. And it was, it was really just to troll liberals and troll environmentalists by doing this. I feel like what's happening with the Republican party is just rolling coal and, and kind of a political level is that if you look at what Kemp is running on, Abrams has a very substantive campaign. I mean, there's, there's a strategic out part of it, a tactical part of it around registration, but it's, a, there's a lot of substance. There's a lot of policy positions that are interesting. And she talks about a lot around, around, uh, education in particular, um, for Kemp, there's nothing. It's 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 an atavistic. It's symbolic and atavistic. It's just a. It's all this, you know, Merry Christmas crap. It's res- respecting our troops. It's you know we're going to round up I- yeah. illegals. It's pointing a gun. You know, pointing the gun. It is. It's weird the way it has it has become. It has devolved into sh- just tribal symbolism. And I, you know, I I gotta hope. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here that. It's certainly there's a huge portion of the electorate that's going to vote that way because they are Republicans. They believe in sort of what Republicans do and also because they respond to this this dog whistling. But at some point, the lack of of any substantive positions are, is going to come back and to haunt uh, Republican Republican politicians. I wonder, though, if in Democratic politics policy carries us some of the identity weight that uh, that those appeals on the Republican side do, which is that Democrats like to, some Democrats do anyway, self-identify as serious policy, government works, mm-hmm. make government efficient so that it can help the maximum number of people, and that that sends an identity message to Democrats in a way that, um, I'm not saying that the motivations yeah. for doing it are the same, but that it may have the ultimately a similar effect uh, with Democrats um, the- yeah, and I think Democrat Dem, there's a there's an identity identity strategy among Democrats too around a lot of civil rights issues and marriage equality and which you know for me are human rights issues and so I sort of feel it but the, they do have that same kind of identity component. It just it it feels on the Republican side it feels particularly backward looking and empty and just about uh, sort of fucking with liberals well yeah and it so, imagines and it imagines this hostility right like who is it that goes around nobody goes around saying don't say merry christmas nobody goes right. around disrespecting our troops that's a completely confected illusion and and yet it's it becomes this thing that people talk about and obsess over and, and make build campaigns on the um two two things in connection with that um well three things i guess so right it's it's um whether Donald Trump endorses a candidate or not is, uh, I think, doesn't have much power. I think if a candidate is seen, as Mark Sanford was, as an active agent working against Donald Trump, I think that can hurt people. But Donald Trump's saying yes or no. I'm not sure how much power that has. But a candidate who mimics his appeals to fear, um, I think, can be 
successful. Uh, and what they are successful in part in doing, Adam Hamilton, a pastor, wrote a Methodist pastor, wrote a great a book that's just out, which is great about living in, a, in fearful times. And one of, his, um, one of his arguments is that in politics, Donald Trump has um, um, so freaked people out about the rising crime rates that it creates a kind of national anxiety that's, that's not verifiable by the facts. Um, and but if you keep everybody hopped up, it has it may have a political benefit, and this uh, that clearly seems to be what Kemp is trying to do. Final point on your your um, rolling coal, um, which reminds me a little bit of the expression "own the libs" and trolling, which is what Paul Ryan said the president was doing by uh, saying he was going to revoke the security clearances of previous intelligence officials, is doing something that is. Um, Basically, just to uh, make your opponents exasperated, Nikki Haley, uh, the U.N. ambassador, um, gave a speech to young conservative high school students in which she said, you know, owning the libs might make you feel uh, happy, might make you laugh, may may uh, please you to do things just to make the other side uncomfortable and, and embarrassed. Uh, but that's not the right way to behave. That's not the right way to persuade anybody of anything. And it's not a sign of leadership. So. That's interesting because that's not exactly the strategy that the president she works for or a number of people uh, like uh, Kemp in, in Georgia. That's not the strategy they're pursuing. However, there's a, there are some Republicans who think that's the dead-end strategy for the party, ultimately. Emily, just going back to the point you made early on about Kemp as secretary of state, there's just been an extraordinary amount of, of uh, incompetence and negligence involving Georgia and its voting systems. Um, significant evidence that that secure data was left exposed it was left exposed even after the state was warned about it that uh voting systems could be compromised that there's like passwords available um kemp has dismissed this there was i i didn't follow this exactly but it seemed like there was a lawsuit um filed and as soon as this lawsuit was filed the state wiped the servers that contained the relevant data for the lawsuit uh, yeah, it was crazy. Just, Wasn't this a story in the New Yorker by Sue Helper? And the story was nuts. Yeah, I mean, so what mechanism is there? Maybe there's none. To it's to me, it's kind of surprising to see the Secretary of State say, "Yeah, it, it doesn't matter that our voting systems are compromised. It's in, it's favoring me." It seems weird that 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 isn't something that a Secretary of State, even a Republican Secretary of State, Democratic Secretary of State, Green Party Secretary of State, isn't uh, up in arms about it. It feels like a basic part of the job. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And look, there are many um, secretaries of state of all parties and persuasions who would see it the way you do. And uh, there are good reasons for that. But there is another kind of breed of state secretary of state right now, um, like in the mold of Chris Kobach, in which you're not thinking about it that way. You're thinking in terms perhaps of partisan advantage or if you want to just like take um, Kemp's rationale at face value, what he said about it was he was preventing federal intrusion. He was refusing to let, um, you know, there be any kind of help from the federal government at a time when the Obama administration was in power. And that was his excuse for um, not accepting the help of federal election um, 
officials or just like dealing with this in some way that seemed like it would be about protecting the integrity of the system as opposed to um, letting it be so vulnerable. I hope that he gets asked a lot of hard questions about that during the campaign because it seems dangerous and increasingly dangerous based on what we know about, you know, how the Russians are trying to influence the 2018 elections. I mean, now we have Dan Coats, you know, Trump's um, one of his main security people saying we have red lights flashing. And this example um, of Kemp leaving these vulnerabilities in the system and then wiping it clean rather than investigating it and fixing it just seems like really kind of mind blowing in that context. All right. Well, this is going to be a super interesting race to keep watching. And uh, I can't wait to see what happens. It's going to be fascinating. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So let's turn now to a tragic and appalling case in Florida where a sheriff this week declined to push forward charges against Michael Draca after he killed Marquise McLaughlin in a convenience store parking lot. So Emily, this is a case uh, with people behaving badly with an overreaction and then a man ending up murdered in front of his children. So talk a little bit about what happened. Well, there's a very brief surveillance video clip of this altercation, so everyone can watch for themselves. But um, a woman named Brittany Jacobs was in her car with her little kids, and she was parked in a handicap space outside the store. And Michael Draca came over to her, and we can't really we can't hear what he said, but presumably told her to move or complain that she was in the space. And right at that moment, her boyfriend, Marquise McLaughlin, came out of the store, heard what was happening, went over to Draca and pushed him. And it's a hard push. Draca falls on the ground. McLaughlin takes a step backward, I think. And yeah. Draca pulls out a gun. And as McLaughlin is backing away, Draca, Draca shoots him. Um, and he died um, in front of his children, as you said. And the... You know, notion that Florida's stand your ground law could mean that this um, shooter, that Draca could face no charges at all, I think is what we're all trying to figure out. Um, it seems like this just can't be the right answer, at least to me. So, Emily, actually, so here's a moment where we can all take a restful two minutes while you give us an incredible disquisition on three really interesting legal concepts that have now merged uh, two ancient ones, the duty to retreat and the castle doctrine, and now a third one that has overtaken them, a distinctively American one called Stand Your Ground. So tell us about each of those. Right. Well, so, you know, traditionally we have a in American and British law, which American law comes out of, we have a really strong notion of self-defense. If someone's attacking you um, and you think they're about to kill you or really hurt you, you're allowed to fight back. Um, but we also have what's called the duty to retreat. And so the notion is that, you know, you don't want a world in which people in a kind of vigilante, like self-police force way, um, react aggressively when they're being threatened if they don't have to. 
We also have an exception to that rule that comes out of British law called the Castle Doctrine, which you just talked about, which is that if someone threatens you, they come into your home and threaten you, then you don't have a duty to retreat. And you can kind of understand that, too, because there's that idea that, you know, in your own home, you shouldn't feel attacked, that if someone enters it, they've kind of lost the right um, for you to have to get out of their way or move back to avoid the confrontation. What Florida has done is take this a step further, and now effectively you have no duty to retreat anywhere. So this parking lot became Michael Draca's castle, in effect. And Mm. what the law says is that um, the person who's using deadly force, the shooter, has a right to do so if he or she reasonably believes that using or threatening to use the force is necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm to himself or others. And so... um, That's the standard in the law. It's caused all kinds of problems for Florida prosecutors. Florida police also tend to really hate this law because it, you know, has escalated conflict. All of that said, as misguided as I think, you know, removing the duty to retreat in public is, I also think that the sheriff in Pinellas County is just completely misinterpreting the law here because it appears from the video that – McLaughlin was backing away. And so the notion that Draca felt like he was at imminent risk of death or bodily harm, I just like don't see that on the video. And see, to me, so to me, it just seems like an even broader interpretation of this stand your ground law than is necessary. Right. So there's no, so it's, he did not have a reasonable fear at that moment. It was an I don't unreasonable think so. fear. Right. right. And when the so, sheriff has gone on TV, he's talked about the sort of subjective fear. He's basically said, well, well, Draco says he feared for his life. But like that should not be the standard. It should be what a reasonable person have feared. Why isn't it the standard ground a defense rather than a reason not to charge? Shouldn't it be something you can invoke assert, in, yeah. Yeah, in, in a trial? You're charged with murder. And you, you use that as a defense. That's Why a is it something question. which prevents a charge to begin with? That's a great question. That is not how the law works in Florida. And I don't remember if this is in the statute or it's based on how the courts have interpreted it. But instead, what has happened is that the state has to affirmatively prove that you did have a duty to retreat. So the burden of proof here um, goes to the prosecutor as opposed to you asserting it as a defense after your charge. That's part of the problem. So, John, one of the extraordinary things about Stand Your Ground is that it has gone from uh, not existing as of 2005. This Mm -hmm. was in Florida passed the law in 2005 to now 25 states having a version of a Stand Your Ground law. Why did this happen? Why has it been so relatively easy for the NRA and and some of its conservative allies to get these laws passed? Well, because they uh, I don't know the full um, the full picture of it. Um, And I also want to go back to the. The details of the case, because I want to get your your all's take on the on if the racial makeup had been different of the participants, um, whether the rulings would have been d- different. Um, but I think that it's become a um, the the growth of concealed carry as a um, as a movement has been very successful for uh, Second Amendment advocates throughout the country. It has had. And and it's now obviously coming up as a potential federal issue um, with the uh, the concealed carry reciprocity legislation that's sponsored by John Cornyn and others. Um, so this is a this is a part of that, and it's a part of um, legislators who believe it, advocates from the NRA who 
and other gun groups that that are promoting it. And it's a it's a part of the connection and the and the uh, what we were talking about in the previous issue, which is it's a way to signal to voters that you are of a that you are tough on crime, that you are a supporter of gun rights. You know, there are ways you, you can say I'm a supporter of gun rights, but then you can say and I want concealed carry and I want stand your ground. It's a it's another way to show action on a core issue for an active set of voters uh, who have shown that they will reward you if you act on their uh, issues and obviously reward you with votes, but also reward you with money. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, the NRA has been very effective at not just defending existing gun rights, but pushing for more of them. And these stand your ground laws, you know, the NRA has lobbied heavily for and ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which writes um, laws, helps right wing conservative lawmakers draft um, laws and pass legislation. They've been a big backer of these stand your ground laws. That's why they're spreading. Actually, that leads me to to I thought was a wonderful piece. And now I can't remember who wrote it. But making the, the extremely persuasive to me point that Sandra Ground laws are anti-conservative, that th- there was no problem with the law as constituted. We had a hundreds of year history across two continents of duty or to retreat and castle doctrine being the way jurisprudence worked. Uh, it was it was the basic legal standard. It was a, there was no evidence there was a crisis of people getting killed and threatened uh, out in parking lots because because there was uh, no stand your ground laws. And instead, legislators go ahead and pass this entirely new standard, which invites all kinds of crazy behavior. And the result is, in fact, that homicide rates go up. There are all kinds of escalated encounters. And it's it's when, when again, as a conservative person with a small C, it just pisses me off. It makes me furious. It's like you had a system that worked relatively well. That was a that was had been tested by hundreds of years of history, where there was no obvious problem that it was causing, and yet people go ahead and change it because it allows them to score a political point and death results and mayhem results and you know also you know racial injustice results. It's it's infuriating. Let's go to the racial component of this. So Emily, there's pretty. Strong. So, so we didn't mention this, but Draca is white and McLaughlin, the victim, is black. And there's pretty strong evidence that it's much easier to make a stand your ground kind of case, and you get you get much more leeway if you're white and you kill someone who is black than the reverse, right? Yes, there is um, evidence like that, and it's really, really distressing and um, makes you feel like even apart from the just wrongheadedness of these laws for the reasons you were saying, they are associated with higher homicide rates. I mean, amazingly, even in this moment where across the country homicide rates are coming down, Florida's is significantly up. So that's correlation, not causation, but it doesn't look like a strong sign that stand your ground laws are making people safer. So there's that whole kind of public health argument. And then there is this problem of racial bias and the way that it plays out in the system. And for me, there's a real parallel here with the death penalty, where, you know, whatever one's feelings are about the morality or immorality of the death penalty, the way that we apply it is racially biased. And it means that, um, you know, Black people who kill white people, um, or especially if there's a white victim, um, no matter who did the killing, that's when we impose the death penalty. And similarly here, it just seems like these stand your ground um, decisions to decline to prosecute come about when um, you have a black victim. It's interesting to me 
that almost nobody, not even conservatives, are really defending Draca. People, I think people are saying the conservative line seems to be the sheriff has misapplied the standard because have, have used the point you made, Emily, which is that he did not have a reasonable fear. And so the sheriff has has misread the law. Nobody is sort of saying, yeah, Draca's Draca's in good shape here. Right. And the state's attorney, you know, the prosecutor for Pinellas County could still come in here and bring charges. And I mean, that's what I'm hoping will happen. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't I, when I watch this video, I just the idea that a fight over a parking space could turn into a lethal shooting in front of children in like broad daylight just seems terrifying. So maybe that's why you're having trouble finding people defending the shooter. Although, actually, I, this I want to get because actually I want to ask you about this, John. People behave in appalling ways around parking spaces and around handicapped parking spaces in particular. It is something that works mm-hmm. people up really in ex- to an extraordinary degree. I mean, uh, McLaughlin and Jacobs, who parked in the handicapped space, apparently without justification, like that's an asshole move. You shouldn't do that. It's the wrong thing to do, and it and it 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 sets people off. I would. I'm actually. I bet there are a ton of murders that take place over parking places, and I know there are tons of of angry confrontations that take place over con- con- uh, parking places because okay, people- angry confrontations no. maybe. I don't think there are a ton of murders. And also, can we just like make sure that you are not veering into victim blaming? Because I am sure you don't think this person deserved to die. Of course, no one deserved to die. Of course, no one deserved to die. And clear that Draca, that Draca, I don't well, need no, to be saved. I mean, the Draca is somebody who had confronted people over this very handicapped parking space before. I'm just saying that. In fact, people behave really badly around parking places and it causes – it sets people off. People people have a sense of ownership over parking places. And so if you think that's a space I'm about to take and someone else takes it, people get agitated about that. The the handicapped parking place and the the way it represents a kind of protected space and then you see people violating it, that causes people to be agitated. I'm not at all saying – of course – no, what, he's course, just seeking to examine a phenomenon in in life. Yeah, and but John, I mean, now, John, no, I think you're right about the conflict over parking spaces. Yes, people get exercised. I, I would like to hear places. also, John. I I feel like you, you are somebody who you are a great analyzer of human behavior under stress in in situations that require decency. So what is it? Yeah, well, it's like road. It's like road rage. I mean, it's a it's a. It's like the most acute or one of the most acute ways, line cutting, road rage, in which we kind of the general airplane injustice behavior. of society. Yeah, the general injustice, right. And airplane behavior, perhaps like seat reclining. The injustices, the larger injustices that, that we all feel outraged about from wherever we come from, um, kind of all distill down into a sharp, pointy thing coming right at us, um, I feel like, is part of what happens in these cases. I think also I saw some very strong reactions to um, Brittany Jacobs, who was interviewed afterwards, saying, I have the right to park wherever I want. That sentiment. um, Did she say that? That's a mistake. Yeah. And this was subsequent to the shooting of um, of her boyfriend. Um, So that did not win, again, even from people who would feel embarrassed if anybody suggested that they were blaming the victim, nevertheless were incensed to hear her say that. So I, I think you're right, uh, David, that this is, um, I mean, in some ways, this may fall apart as I say it, but here we go. In the, To the extent that 
the the Starbucks confrontation that we talked about a few weeks ago is that Starbucks became the location for a lot of other huge, massive societal things that we don't know how to wrestle with very well. Um, and so that it was more than what happened in that actual store. It's it's a lot about the societal um, currents that just happened to appear in that store. And I feel like your point about parking lots and these spaces um, is kind of right. Um, and it's sort of a surprise to me that, we, that there isn't more of this. Um, let me ask you the question about... Um, I was unclear if the sheriff was sort of saying, sure, I would charge this guy, but my hands are tied. Um, in other words, was he, was it sort of, I don't know, Emily, there must be a, a word in the law for this, which is we just have to follow the rule of law, even though we all think it makes no sense because, um, you know, McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin was clearly backing up in the video. And uh, and he was backing up uh, the way it looked to me before um, Drake, uh, pulled any weaponry i mean it's a pretty fuzzy thing but it looks like he pushes him and then he immediately starts backing up um so if uh, anyway yeah the sheriff i mean he did say something like i don't make the law or something that um absolved himself of responsibility and but but because he seems to me to be making the wrong call it's hard to not see that as like a paper thin excuse especially because he also pointed out that a few seconds elapsed between um, the shove, Draco falling to the ground, and then the pulling out of the gun and the shooting, suggesting, I mean, even the sheriff said it gave him pause that because there was that space and time, maybe Draco didn't feel like he was, you know, under imminent threat. So it was like he was undermining his own rationale in the moment um, in this way that was quite odd. All right, let's wrap it there. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Let's go to cocktail chatter. 
when you are having a cocktail at one of your parties, Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about? All right. This is a sad one, and I'm sorry about that. But several years ago, I wrote about this incredibly tragic case in which um, a baby um, got very sick and um, ha- ended up having seizures, you know, throughout his life. And the cause was mysterious. And his babysitter at the time, whose name is Trudy Munoz, was accused of shaking him and went to prison. And to me, it looked like a case in which the evidence that this was shaken baby syndrome was um, really disputed. Trudy was not a native English speaker. And when um, a social worker questioned her, she described jiggling the baby um, after he like collapsed. And that Spanish word got translated as her confessing to have shaken the baby, which does not seem to have been what happened. But um, in any case, it was this case that went to trial and led to a prison sentence, and all of the appeals that her lawyers filed um, were denied. So now Trudy Munoz is finally getting out of prison, but she is not an American citizen. Um, She's from Peru, and so she is eligible for deportation, and because she has this felony conviction, once she gets out in August, it's entirely likely she'll be deported. And so this woman who you know, may well have been wrongfully convicted and spent years in prison is going to be separated from her children and her family um, and sent far away to a place where she hasn't lived for many years. And the only remedy left is a pardon request pending before um, the Virginia Parole Board and Governor Northam in Virginia. And to the utter frustration of um, Trudy Munoz's lawyers, the parole board said they were going to look into it. And then it turned out who was the parole board investigator had a conflict of interest. And the case just seems to be sitting there with no one paying any attention to it. Um, it really seems to me that Governor Northam's people should at least take a close look at this. Um, since Munoz was convicted, um, there have been more convictions overturned and more questions raised about um, about shaken baby syndrome in terms of whether you, how easy or hard it is to tell that it's a cause of a child's injuries. Obviously, nobody wants children to be injured, and um, that's a very scary thing, but there was a kind of uh, very righteous push to blame the last caregiver um, of a child when a child had abusive head trauma. And the um, medical opinion around that has been shifting, but um, not necessarily in a way yet that has helped this particular woman. Oh, my God. I'm just looking. Sorry, I was listening to you, Emily, but I happened to be on the Washington Post website. And there's a story saying that Stormy Daniels' attorney will speak in Iowa fueling speculation of possible presidential bid. Is that a joke? Are you kidding? Is this what we've come to? That some guy who's a lawyer for some <laughs> random person in a scandal gets to run for president? That's ridiculous. John. Although if we're going to talk about Stormy Daniels, the story of that crazy targeted arrest of her is just like really upsetting. Anyway, that's in Ohio, I think. Yeah. Sorry. John, what's your chatter? My chatter was that um, as I was thinking about uh, this week's news and President Trump and um, and Michael Cohen and whether it was important or where it fit in the scheme of things and all of that, I, I was reminded of um, uh, that even given the fact that the president is associated with at least two cases of, of paying a great deal of money, at least in my, my uh, view of things, $150,000 is a lot of is a great deal of money, um, to two women to, to hush money, essentially, that he still, I don't think, an economist would have to... Um, 
to calculate this in real dollars, but it still would not be, if those are the only amounts that he paid in hush money, would not be the historical leader in hush money payments to uh, women with whom he had affairs. I should note quickly that he alleges that, or that he says that he did not have those affairs. But nevertheless, he did pay the hush money. So in that sense, it's apples to apples with Warren Harding. Um, And that drove me to an article by Jordan Michael Smith in Politico uh, from August of 2015, which is entitled America's Horniest President. I uh, encourage everyone to to read it um, because it's, it's really... It's extraordinary what the way Warren Harding behaved. We've had fun at Harding's expense uh, rather regularly, I should say, on this show, um, because his letters to his various um, to the people with whom he had affairs, uh, he was married, um, have been published. Um, but I guess I didn't realize the the extortion portion of it. So, um, Carrie Phillips, which is one of his um, mistresses was paid about $5,000 a month by the Republican National Committee. Um, But then in the end, she was able to somehow finagle, in addition to those payments, a a gift from the RNC of about $25,000. And so this article says basically— Is that in 20s dollars? um, Or that's in— Yeah, that's in— that's a lot of money. That's exactly right. Um, And so they—the article calculates $25,000 from— 19, I guess this would have been 27, the 20s anyway, at, at about $300,000 today. So that's why I say that that even just with, with uh, Carrie Phillips, it would have been um, it would have been more than the totals that we know about from the president's hush money. But then also there's Nan Britton, with whom um, Harding used to have assignations in the closet, the coat closet of the White House, while a Secret Service uh, officer... Uh, watched guard outside and would knock on the door if Mrs. Harding was uh, wasn't was in she the, the secret service officer in that case? What's that? Wasn't Nan Britton doing the secret service? But what? <laughs> um, anyway, Nan Britton was um, was shamed. In, uh, Harding dies. There's a baby. Basically, to make the money back, Britain writes a book. Everybody shames her and says um, she's making it all up. But then it was finally ultimately disclosed that Harding made secret child support payments until he died. Um, and uh, a DNA test was done uh, that later proved that she, in fact, Nan Britton was was um, was right. Anyway, Warren Harding, what an amazing uh, chapter in American history. Um, anyway, are, is so that, is that's... Are there I, descendants of that child? That child who was born in the question. 25? Or? That is a, that's a great question. I don't think there are descendants of Cleveland's um, love child, but... Um, but I, I don't know in this case. Uh, one other thing I would like to recommend is the movie Eighth Grade, um, which uh, Bo Burnham uh, directed. It is a fantastic movie. Um, the acting is just amazing. If you are a parent, it will be both revelatory and terrifying. And um, there, there's this one scene where Anne turned to me in the, and said, this may be the greatest scene I have ever witnessed. Um, it has to do. Oh with my chicken god! McNuggets. I can't wait to see this movie. That was such a good plug. Yeah. It has to do with chicken McNuggets or ch- uh, chicken nuggets. And Dickerson the scene the or the whole movie? <laughs> yeah, but definitely see the whole movie. It's really uh, uh, well rendered. Uh, all right, my chatter, uh, and also I have a listener chatter too. So my chatter is also a recommendation of something to watch, which I don't think I've recommended before. Izzy tells me I haven't, uh, which is Succession, this show on HBO. Um, it's been sort of under the radar. It's a it's a um, scenery chewing drama about 
basically about the Murdoch family. It's about a media tycoon and his children and the media tycoon who's gone into deep old age, but is still a lion. He is still a quite powerful lion, although fading on in some ways. And the jockeying of his children, each more Lyrian, each, each more ruthless and terrible than the next. Um, and it's great. It is, there's amazing, amazing scenery chewing, as I said, especially by Brian Cox as the patriarch, uh, the, the, um, the settings are spectacular. The, there's a lot of wonderful failure. Um, it reminds me a lot of a show I loved a few years ago called Kings, which was sort of a biblical, it was a biblical retelling about Saul and David. And it's very similar in, in feel. So if you are somebody who liked Kings, you will definitely love Succession. And it has an incredible soundtrack, the best soundtrack of anything I've heard in years. So check it out. There were, again this week, you guys... Listeners, you sent us amazing chatters. Please keep them. Oh coming. my god, they were so They're great! So good. All of them, all of them were, were better than all of ours. Um, oh, so oh, totally agree. Oh. Throw it, throw in heat, but I think it's true. Uh, and really, yeah, really a, a a bonus because there was a period there where I where things were fallow and uh, really great. Yeah, so, we're so you're sending it. So just to remind you, please tweet at us with at at like Gabfest with something you read, something you know about, something you learned about, something you've seen that's wonderful, strange, interesting, horrifying, magical, and most of all, worthy of discussion at, at a Bazelon cocktail party. Um, and so, again, <laughs> as I said, there were just a ton of great ones. And maybe we'll, we'll post all of them in some fashion uh, on the page somewhere. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But uh, the one that I want to call out is from Christopher McCuba, who... Uh, sent us a wonderful story from the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, which is a uh, it's one of these stories that begins one way and ends different way. It's about a 13 year old African-American uh, child named Jaquan Faulkner, who set up Mr. Faulkner's old fashioned hot dogs. He set up a hot dog stand in his neighborhood. And because people are jerks, someone, of course, called the health department on him and was like, <sighs> you know, don't sell your hot dogs, you little teenager. And so normally that ends one way. This time it ended a different way, which is that the city of Minneapolis and the health inspectors of Minneapolis were like, great, uh, let's give you a quick course in, in sanitation and and how to run a, a, uh, a, a well-run hot dog stand, learn, learn some food prep, and we'll pay for your permit. We'll pay for your, your um, vending permit. And so they paid for his vending permit. They trained him a little. And now he's, he's taking his hot dog stand all around the city this summer and taking it to places like police stations and public parks. And it's a great story of of entrepreneurship being recognized and and um, appreciated. And so it was it was uh, started grim and turned heartwarming. So thank you to Christopher for sending that our way. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Danielle Hewitt and Jason DeLeon. Today, Jocelyn is elsewhere. Our researcher is Izzy Road. Today and all weeks, you can follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabfest for. Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.